Welcome to Future of Freedom. I'm your host, Scott Bertram. Future of Freedom is a production of America's Talking Network. You can check out all of our great podcasts at americastalking.com. To support great podcasts like this one, please donate by clicking the link in the show description. We bring you a discussion today about men in the workforce and try to get to a point where we address the question, is government action needed to improve the economic status of American men? We'll be joined by two guests today with some competing thoughts on the topic. In a little bit, we'll be joined by Scott Winship. He is Senior Fellow and Director of Poverty Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. And right now, we're joined by Nicholas Eberstadt. He is Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute, AEI.org, and also author of the book Men Without Work, America's Invisible Crisis. Nicholas, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for inviting me. The book Men Without Work was released in 2016, and there is a new edition out now taking into account some of the COVID, post-COVID data that we see. What can you tell us about what we know and and how COVID has also impacted what you called America's invisible crisis? Well, thanks, Scott. In in this uh, post-COVID edition of the book, I uh, update the worrisome trends that I'd identified in the 2016 uh, original uh, volume. Back then, we could see that for fully half a century, the workforce participation rates of prime age men, the crucial 25 to 54-year-old group that's the backbone of the labor force still, it's also important to society for social reproduction, for the raising of families, raising of children. Uh, that rate had been going down for half a century. Weirdly, in a way that I can't explain, the flight from work has continued on exactly the same trajectory that I cast out, uh, that I showed in 2016. It's almost a continuing straight line. So that part is bad. But as they say on the QVC channel, wait, there's more. <laughs> uh, what we have seen as well in the COVID shock and the post-COVID period is a new additional face to the flight from work. More or less now as we are speaking, the workforce in the United States is about 4 million persons lower than we would have expected on pre-COVID trends. Not all of that, in fact, only a very small fraction of that is due to these prime age men. We're seeing uh, more older former workers uh, dropping out taking perhaps what we might call premature, unsustainable retirement. We're also seeing younger prime-age women join this group. And the, uh, the, bizarre, uh, the bizarre mirroring here is that this 4 million person drop in workforce, in expected workforce, is almost the exact amount of the jump in unfilled jobs in America. Hmm. Now, in the post-COVID era, we have an unprecedented peacetime labor shortage. Over 10 million, between 10 and 11 million unfilled jobs with this great resignation. And 
the workers who have joined the sidelines have not been able to be enticed back into the workforce. Listening to you talk, Nicholas, it sounds like you would essentially discount uh, demand-side influence on this problem, globalization, automation, things like that, and essentially say this this is a supply-side issue. Well, I think the supply-side aspect has been seriously under-examined. I mean, the conventional wisdom, the received uh, narrative, I hate that word, in economic and policy circles is that demand-side uh, problems are what we're looking at. The globalization, the drop in demand for less skilled labor, a decline of manufacturing, uh, we could go on. And there's some truth to that. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's some truth to that. But that's not the whole story for the United States, and I don't think it's even most of the story. On the cover of my book, uh, Men Without Work, America's Invisible Crisis, I have this picture of the you know, what we might call the inactivity rate, the proportion of prime-age men uh, who are neither working nor looking for work, and how that uh, trend has changed from 65 to 2016. Scott, it's almost a straight line up. Mm. I mean, it's uh, for, for the nerds uh, in your uh, audience, if there are any, it's a, uh, a 0.96 uh, R squared. I mean, it's what you might call a social science straight line, since mm -hmm. people are a little bit disorderly. You couldn't possibly get a line that, you know, unerringly, upwardly bent if business cycles, economic shocks, uh, China entering the World Trade Organization had a big impact on these trends. So yes, I think we have, uh, we have left the supply side of the problem seriously under-examined. There is also uh, what you might call the institutional barriers problem. That is almost entirely uncharted statistically in our national uh, information system. And what I'm referring to is the huge number of people now who are ex-coms, mm -hmm. who have a felony conviction in their background. Uncle Sam doesn't tabulate those numbers, but some uh, demographers, independent demographers, have attempted to do so. Um, as of uh, today, while we're speaking, there are probably 25 million men and women, adults, uh, overwhelmingly men, who have a felony conviction in their background in our society. They're effectively invisible. Um, the overwhelming majority are not you know, incarcerated. We talk about mass incarceration, of course, but for every person behind bars, there's an, probably 10 ex-coms in, uh, in society at large who are not in prison. This big invisible group of male ex-coms is also part of the situation we're talking about today. Nicholas, what about the role of the social safety net and government transfers? We are a, a wealthy nation, and a wealthy nation can afford on some level to pr provide this, this safety net for people who are not working. But is it encouraging people to simply not look for work at all, to live a life of uh, not quite leisure, but to live a life without concern for work? Well, we have this strange situation in our society today, Scott, where we're the wealthiest, most, most financially affluent society that's ever existed, 
And this, and yet we have so much misery around us, I mean, the deaths of despair, the broken families, the crime. We're able to finance new forms of dysfunction that would have been impossible if we were on a depression-level income budget, if you see what I mean. Neither I nor any other person who professes to be a social scientist can prove to you or show to you that the uh, the disability archipelago and our social welfare state, which Europeans and other friends will tell us is very stingy, uh, are causing the problems I'm describing, the male dropout problem. Uh, I can show you, and I do show in this book, I believe, uh, incontestably that it is helping to finance the problem. It's odd, but there is no office you can go to in Washington, D.C., which has a great number of offices, where you can find out the number of persons in the United States who are receiving one or more disability benefit from the crazy quilt of disability systems we have in our country that don't talk to each other. I did my best in this book by looking at different uh, benefits from different programs uh, to conclude that well over half of the prime age men who are neither working nor looking for work before the COVID catastrophe were receiving one or more benefit from a disability program, and about two-thirds were living in households that were receiving one or more benefits from disability programs. That does not allow you to live a princely life. Mm -hmm. You may be living a penurious life, but it is a work-free life. Is it is it possible that part of the the number comes from some sort of, let's call it an underground economy that that exists, whether it be a, a lifestyle of some criminal behavior or unreported activity that combined with these transfers allows for, as you point out, not a princely life, but a, a life that is manageable. Is that something that we also should discourage? Well, that, no, you, I think you've put your finger on an important question. And so how, how large is the uh, gray economy, the underground economy? This is something which is of interest to many policymakers in the United States, not least the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, and it's, it is an unanswerable question since it's an unobserved, unreported uh, set of activities. The, the IRS, for what this is worth, thinks that there are that it is losing billions of dollars in tax revenue from this more or less the group that we're describing here the important point is that we're talking about loss of billions of dollars not tens or you know hundreds of billions of dollars if they are correct that would give us a picture of people who are doing you know uh some roofing jobs on the side and getting a little bit of vacation money, mm -hmm. not people who are buying second homes in Tahoe. Nicholas Eberstadt with us. He is Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute. His book is Men Without Work, America's Invisible Crisis. We talked a bit about disability and, and the safety net and also about the possibility of criminal justice reform. These, these millions of persons in the U.S. with felony criminal convictions, which make it hard to to, uh, to, to get a job, if one or the other were, were to be a policy priority, which do you think would inspire or encourage more men to re-enter the workforce and to look for work? 
holding back, scaling back that safety net somewhat, or or criminal justice reform that makes it easier for ex-felons to get those jobs? Well, Scott, remember when we're talking about policy research, we're only talking about things that we can do through pushing the buttons that government operates. Mm -hmm. I do not have uh, my magic wand, so I cannot fix the family in America. You know, that that would have an enormous impact on uh, men without work. I can't restore the values, attitude, outlook that the United States had a couple of generations ago with respect to work. If we're just looking at the little buttons, certainly increasing access to what uh, used to be called vocational training, uh, which is that uh, phrase has been, I guess, banned by the uh, political correctness police in, uh, in education, but we know what it means. People graduate from school without marketable skills, and that's heinous. Uh, more skills would be better. We could probably dare to think about what a disability reform would look like to my way of thinking, just conceptually, a, uh, a work-first principle would be highly desirable in our disability uh, insurance approaches uh, rather than uh, policies that unintentionally, inadvertently incentivize helplessness and dependence. We had a very successful welfare reform in the 1990s that was focused upon single mothers. I think we could have possibly uh, an effective uh, disability reform effort as well if we could come together for it. The easiest, uh, the easiest of the policy measures, the lowest hanging fruit, would be just casting light on this enormous invisible population of ex-cons in the United States for reasons that uh, I still cannot explain. Uncle Sam seems to have no interest at all in illuminating the, statistically illuminating, the conditions under which the millions and millions and millions of ex-cons who are paid their debt in society and are in society as a whole are living. Their employment, their health, their uh, household arrangements, uh, all the rest. You can't have evidence-based policies for what's called re-entry into the economy, into jobs, you can get back into families, back into society. You can't have evidence-based policies if you don't have the evidence. And it would be wonderful if somebody in Washington would just lift a little finger hmm. and ask for this information so that the rest of us could have it. Nicholas, how, how do we hold the idea of individual liberty and, and and this freedom to do what the individual wants with the larger cultural desires as well. All these f familial familial issues we we've been discussing a little bit here. Um, you know the, the desire for 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 marriage or, or children. How do we balance the individual choice of someone to not want to work or, or to not work as hard as we might want them to work mm. uh, with what is best for the culture? I think, I think we have to be very mindful of individual liberty. Uh, we also have to be mindful of self-destruction and of our obligations to our brothers and sisters who are 
engaged inadvertently or no in acts of self-destruction. Uh, if you take a look at this self-reported time use information from the government's national time use surveys by men who are neither working nor looking for work in this critical prime age group, 25 to 54, it's really disturbing. They report that they are basically not doing civil society. They report that they are doing uh, devoting almost no time to worship or to charity or to volunteering. They've got a lot of time on their hands, but they're not doing an awful lot of help around the household, either with household chores or with looking after other people. Uh, what they say that they are doing is watching as much as 2,000 hours of screen time a year. We don't know what exactly they're watching or what type of screens. And before the, uh, before the COVID pandemic, in one of these surveys, they asked a question, uh, you know, are you taking pain medication? Hmm. About half of these guys said they're taking pain medication every day. This is not uh, free time being used as leisure. Uh, this is free time being used in a way that is courting deaths of despair. Uh, and so I, th I think we have to be mindful that there are very, very few positive results that are coming from this these chosen paths. This is not the use of free time to bone up on your Schopenhauer. Uh, this is a heartache for families and communities and societies and loved ones. Nicholas Eberstadt is Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute. His book, Men Without Work, America's Invisible Crisis. Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us here on The Future of Freedom. Thank you so much for inviting me. And for a slightly different perspective, we turn to Scott Winship, who is Senior Fellow and Director of Poverty Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, again, AEI.org. Scott, thanks so much for joining us here on Future of Freedom. Yeah, pleasure to be here, Scott. Thanks. We, we are talking about uh, men in the workforce. Is perhaps action needed to improve the economic status of American men? We talked a little uh, earlier in our conversations about the decline in the labor force participation rate. I know you've also done some work looking, though, more on the wage side. Should we be as concerned about this, this falling labor force participation rate? Should we be more concerned about wages and how wages have trended over time? Yeah, those are big questions. I think there's reason to be concerned about both of them, um, although I, I think the the long term trends in both of them are are pretty poorly understood. Um, so I, I think first of all, there are a lot of arguments out there that men's pay uh, has declined much more sharply uh, than has really been the case. And typically, you know, those analyses look at men by educational attainment. Um, the problem with those numbers is that. You know, men who got less than a high school degree were something like 40 percent of men 50 years ago, 40 um, uh, percent of prime age men. Um, and today that's more like 10 percent. So if you're looking at a trend in that group over time, you know, today that's a really disadvantaged group compared to how it was 50 years ago. Um, I try to uh, uh, avoid this by looking at um, kind of how the typical uh, work male worker in the middle, uh, how their pay has changed over time. You can sort of look at the 25th percentile, you know, which is the person who makes less than 75% of, uh, of, of prime age male workers out there. Um, and when you look at those, you know, there's there's not sort of 
reason to rejoice in that uh, pay uh, isn't a lot higher um, than it was for these guys 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the timing is such that, you know, the 1970s and 80s um, and, and through the 90s recession were, were pretty bad years uh, for guys. Um, but, but in the last 30 years, um, wages have increased quite a bit. Um, and even that earlier decline, I think, is more complicated than, than people think. If that's true, why do we hear so much about the lamentations about the elimination or the impossibility of a single income household where uh, the dad works and mom is at home raising kids? We're we're told that is tougher and tougher for families to manage. Do you find that to be true? Why do we hear so much about that? Well, I think part of the reason that that it's certainly perceived as being true is that, um, you know, it probably is harder to live at uh, a 2023 um, standard of living on one income uh, than it is to live on a 1973 um, uh, standard of living on one income. Um, over the last 50 years, more and more wives have entered the workforce and, and work more. So we have a lot more dual earner couples um, than we used to. And um, therefore, if you kind of want to live at a standard of living like uh, like dual earner couple, couples um, uh, live at, then that's that's going to be pretty tough to do on one income if, if, if your sort of standard is dual dual earner and, and you want to do the same thing with one earner, mm-hmm. um, that's tricky. Uh, however, if if folks were were willing to live at the living standards that the typical family had in 1973, that's gotten a lot easier over time. Um, uh, and so the reason that it feels like it's gotten hard to raise a family on one income is that you know over 50 years we've chosen. Uh, more stuff. Um, we've chosen to, to, to send more uh, dual earner families into the workforce. Um, those have come with trade-offs in the form of, oh, you know, increased childcare costs, um, reduced family time, reduced community time, all sorts of, of costs have come along with that. Um, but, uh, but, but it hasn't gotten any more difficult to live at a given standard of living um, and to do that with one earner. We just like a better standard of living these days. You, you talk about choices being made, choices uh, by, by women entering the workforce, choices by men perhaps influenced by those women entering the workforce. If we do find that some of those choices um, lead to a road of self-destruction almost, what is, what is our obligation as a society through our government to encourage more positive results? Hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. A lot of a lot of uh, how you answer this question depends on sort of how, how much you think uh, the government should consciously try to influence uh, folks' values. Um, you know, I think the, the most important thing is is that people begin to realize that these really are trade offs based on decisions that we've that we've freely made for the most part. Um, to the extent that we uh, want to encourage um, more sort of traditional single breadwinner families, which I, I, I personally wouldn't be in favor of. Um, you know, you can you can try to do things like uh, have a child allowance um, or expand the child tax credit. That certainly has been a big debate, even uh, among conservatives over the last couple of years. Um, you can attempt to sort of um, incentivize either more kids or or more one worker families in that way. Um, but, you know, if, if you buy the premise that I make in my report, which is that these are kind of choices people have made, uh, you're not going to be able to change those choices with kind of 
uh, what I would call sort of tinkering, you know, at the margin. I think even folks like Lyman Stone, um, you know, who's a demographer who who very much uh, wishes that we had more fertility, um, he acknowledges that the kind of money you'd have to uh, put out there uh, to get these changes um, would be would be huge. Um, certainly bigger than anybody any any politicians really talking about. So really, I think this is kind of one of those things where it comes down to individual Americans to say, like, are we okay with the choices that, that we've made? Um, what have we lost? Um, if we sort of feel like we don't have enough family time, um, if we're not as involved in the community as we'd like, you know, that we sort of need to sort of look at ourselves and say, what are we willing to, to give up in terms of material stuff uh, for that sort of thing? Scott Winship is with us. He is Senior Fellow and Director of Poverty Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, AEI.org. In the report, you discuss the the timing of earnings growth being pushed back post-college education, for some post-graduate education, that for some also pushes back marriage, it pushes back the beginning of families. For those who don't want to go down that path, do you think it is worth it to consider shifting some of the education funding toward more vocational education for high schools or community colleges to encourage men to enter the workforce perhaps more quickly. Yeah, that's actually a a really good point. Um, You know, we do sort of continue to have a public policy, a federal policy that um, that has kind of a four year degree for everybody as as the model. you know, we're kind of bumping up against the limits, I think, of, of sort of how many uh, folks we can get through um, all the way through to getting a four-year degree. Um, and even for some folks that do get all the way through, you know, it, it might not have been worth it in the end. So uh, I do think there's a lot to be said for providing more pathways um, to success, to upward mobility um, for people for whom, you know, a four-year college degree doesn't, doesn't make uh, the most sense. Um, and, and that probably would, uh, as you suggest, um, incre- increase the number of, uh, marriages that marriages would happen earlier, uh, than they do. Um, people would start having kids earlier than they do. Uh, a big cause of why fertility has declined over time is just that, uh, women get married, uh, later than they used to. And so kind of the window for, for having kids, um, is smaller than it was. Um, so, you know, I think for a social conservative who really wanted more, uh, more marriage, um, more kids, um, changing education policy would actually uh, be a more productive way to go than, than tinkering with, with tax policy. Very interesting part of your research shows that work has risen most among women with the best educated husbands, not among wives of lower skilled men. Uh, meaning essentially the decisions of married women to work have become actually less sensitive to their husband's status over time, not more. So when we talk about reforming perhaps the the social safety net or disability or or, or the sort of uh, government transfer payments that go to individuals, do you think any sort of, of tinkering on that end would have a significant impact on these issues we're discussing? Yeah, so th- so this raises an important point. I think there there are you know reasons to worry about the fact um, that, as Nick Eberstadt uh, points out, fewer men are working overtime. Um, so so there are reasons to be concerned, and then there are some reasons not to be concerned. You know, the, in research that I did in 2017 uh, for the Mercatus Center, I basically looked at sort of 50 year trends, and you know what what I concluded is that 
about half of the drop in prime age men working is due to uh, men who, who report being disabled. About 15% of that is men who are enrolled in school. 15% of the decline is men who are uh, caring for children or, or taking care of things at home. Um, about 10% is early retirement and about 10% is uh, people who can't find work. So that 10%, you know, people who can't find work um, really goes to show how much of, of, of these long-term trends in, in less work um, really is not about kind of, you know, the diminishing strength of the economy. Um, the fact that half of that decline are guys who, who report being disabled um, really does implicate the safety net. Um, in, in my paper, I sort of go through how, you know, most measures of health have not declined over time. You know, it's become easier for people with disabilities to, to find and keep work. Um, there's been all sorts of assistive technologies developed. So for any variety of reasons, we, we would have expected that disability would become less of a cause for, for people not, not working than, than more of a cause, except um, that our, our federal disability policies, um, uh, disability insurance policies, have become uh, more accessible and more generous over time. And you see uh, in the trend data for um, how many people are receiving disability benefits, that going up over time. Furthermore, um, you know, men who aren't working live with with other family members or with with girlfriends, um, with their parents. Uh, and if you sort of look at everybody in the households of of guys who who are not working, about three out of four um, are in a household that's receiving government benefits. So so the safety net, you know, really is inducing a lot of people to stop working. And that, you know, it really does call for some pretty significant reforms to the SSDI program, which is the Social Security Disability Program, uh, and the SSI program, which is more of a, of a sort of low-income safety net program. On a large scale, Scott, a big economic picture, should we want to maximize employment? Should we want to reintegrate as many of these males back into the workforce as possible for societal reasons, for cultural reasons, for family reasons? Or should we be more concerned uh, about uh, the wages, as some of your research has has gone into, should we be more concerned about maximizing the wages for those who have made the choice that they want to work and want to be employed? Yeah, I, boy, I hate to have to choose between the two of them. I think, you know, <laughs> I guess I would say, um, you know, for for a lot of guys who are not working, there there is a subset of them who I think we should just not worry about, and it's really kind of none of our business, right? If if somebody's taking care of kids. Uh, if somebody's getting a master's degree, if somebody retires early because they're doing well, bravo for them. Um, like that's really none of our business. If there are guys who are not working because they are getting safety net benefits um, and really could be working, then you know that that is something I think that uh, that federal policy ought to care a lot about um, because I, I think a lot in a lot of cases those guys would be better off if they were if they were working, and even if they are. To the extent that they're not, you know, we, I think we just want to encourage um, independence, um, not necessarily maximize the employment rate, but certainly, you know, encourage uh, independence rather than dependence on government benefits. For wages, yeah, I, th I think, I, I think, you know, if we could get stronger wage growth, that would, would not only help guys who have chosen to work, but it probably would induce some more men who are on the sidelines um, to, to take jobs as well. So there, you know, the key is really getting stronger 
labor productivity growth over time, you know, making increasing the value of what workers produce in an hour, that is has been lower, uh, you know, for the last 50 years than it was in the middle of the 20th century. And if we could get back to the rates that we had in the middle of the 20th century, that would that would be fantastic. Is there any way in your research you've been able to quantify the importance or, or how to how to integrate the fact that that men can can say that perhaps something is more important than 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 the wage or more important than the money, whether it be more flexible hours or whether it be more time at home or whether it be mm-hmm. something along those lines, because now more women are working, more uh, women in a household are working, that there are there are more variables that come into play that only that household can perhaps answer? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think, you know, we learned a little bit. Um, one of one of the very few good things that came out of COVID um, is, is you know, the possibilities for, um, for working at home um, and to some extent combining work and family uh, became a little bit uh, wider. Um, uh, a lot of, a lot of work can be done, um, you know, not in, not, not, person to person. Unfortunately, you know, a, a lot of those kinds of jobs that, you know, do sort of allow for more flexibility are uh, for relatively highly educated workers um, who are in office environments or whatever and can do their meetings virtually rather than in person. Uh, service jobs, retail jobs, you know, the kind of thing where you have to deal with customers directly, that's obviously uh, trickier to do. But to the extent that we could you know, uh, encourage more flexibility in that regard, um, potentially flexibility of hours. I think the gig economy, you know, opens up um, some some possibilities uh, for workers that don't have college degrees, for instance, um, who, you know, may want more flexibility uh, around their work and family uh, division. Interestingly, like these are, these are uh, approaches that are facilitated by more technology. And I think that gets to uh, the importance of of raising productivity, which was is also uh, driven by technology. Um, lots of times we hear about uh, people worrying about robots and um, uh, immiserating us all, uh, putting us all out of work. But um, but really, it's in a lot of ways, you know, that will be the way that we kind of get more flexibility uh, to to better balance work and family. I think. Scott Winship is Senior Fellow and Director of Poverty Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. Find more at AEI.org. Scott, thank you so much for joining us here on The Future of Freedom. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Bertram. We thank both our guests on today's program. Nicholas Eberstadt, Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute, author of Men Without Work, America's Invisible Crisis, and Scott Winship, Senior Fellow and Director of Poverty Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. For more episodes of the Future of Freedom podcast and other fine podcasts from America's Talking Network, check out americastalking.com or wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Future of Freedom, presented by America's Talking Network. 